You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Father, um, Lord, we, uh, we are here today um, to worship you together, to give weight and attention to you as the one who is above all things, the, the one whose name is above all names. We recognize that you are a good father. So good that you've given us your word. Your word which can be trusted. Your word which acts like a mirror that we might look into. Your word which... As we look into the mirror and see our reflection, we also see the reflection of Jesus at that cross, through that empty tomb, and we're reminded of the hope of heaven. So Father, I ask that you would come and speak to us as we open your word together. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see you in all of your glory. Father, we've been talking about a touchy topic for the last four weeks as we look to your word in regards to money and wealth. And as we wrap up that series today, Lord, I pray that you would help our hearts to be open to what you have said in your word. I pray, God, that you would continue a work of change and transformation in our hearts as a church family in regards to the wealth that you have given us and the abilities that you've given us to make that wealth. So, Father, I, uh, I ask that you would do all of that. Um, it seems odd to, to ask that in the midst of sermonizing about giving, to ask you to also um, bring those who do not yet know you within the sound of this message to know you. And to bring those who do know you closer, closer to the foot of that cross, but also at the same time closer to your throne room, into your presence. I pray that you would do that and trust you to do that work. In Jesus' name, amen. I know I'm cutting out, right? The mic? Seems like it's cutting out like crazy, so I apologize if it does. (laughs) It just sounds like it is for me. Um, so we are, Donnie's giving me a thumbs up, so it must just be me and my hearing. My wife always says I need hearing aids. Anyways, it's probably true. It's just because I don't listen to her like I should. So this is, uh, this is the uh, fourth and final week of our series on a theology of giving, right? And I want to quickly, quickly and just kind of briefly give a, a review of where we've been You should see some things on a slide here in a moment. In week one, if you were with us, you would remember that we looked at uh, the book of Malachi chapter three. Um, And what we did was we surveyed in that passage the character of God uh, in contrast with the character of his people, right? And so what we saw there is that God is consistently faithful while we, his people, are kind of consistently unfaithful. You could also say consistently inconsistent, right? Anybody know what that's like in your own life where it's like, gosh, I just want to be more consistent. I, oh, I am. I'm consistently inconsistent. Yeah. Stars. Oh no, that's not the way it should be. Um, so we, we, we learned that we saw that in that text and, and the problem that we saw in that passage 
uh, is that God's people were doing what? They were robbing God. I mean, you get this picture. I mean, I used to watch Westerns when I was a kid. Y'all, most of y'all know that. And always um, got a kick out of the bad guys when they would show up to rob the bank and then the good guys were hiding out inside. And it was like, you idiots. What are you? That's kind of the thought I get when I'm like, man, I, I've robbed God. I'm an idiot. <laughs> I mean, sorry for the harsh language, but it's like, man, can you really rob God? Like, how, how crazy would it be for us to do so? So we saw that in that text, though. God's basically confronting them for robbing him, and he calls them to repent and to believe. And in the midst of that, we caught this picture that when we walk that way, when Israel would trust God with their wealth, what would happen? All of the nations around them would see. So in our giving and our money management kind of acts like an evangelism tool. We always see evangelism tools like a tract that you might hand out, right? Or a conversation at a fair or something like that. But the reality is like, hey, when you give your money faithfully, it's actually an evangelistic tool because when you give your money and you submit and surrender that to God, he blesses you. It's not a give to get thing. It's living in the blessing of obedient, faith-filled living, right? And in the midst of that, the entire world goes, man, how is it that that, that you, you, you a believer or that church is that blessed? Why is that? It's not like we got jets that were flying all over the place. Rent pretty heavy against some of those theological underpinnings anyways. It's just simply that we would live a blessed life. That's the invitation of week one. Week two, we examined the story of the widow who gave everything. I, the thing that I loved about that from, from Luke 21 was I didn't preach that. Donnie preached that. And he was so kind and faithful to the text to have said, you know, the New Testament doesn't really tell us how much we're supposed to give necessarily, but this is one place where we can see that Jesus says, hey, that, that lady did well. So by implication, there is a place where it says how much you should give, and you should give how much? Everything. I, I confess that I have yet to do that when it comes to my money. I've, I've yet to take a paycheck and go, well... Here's everything. Um, or take my bank account and say, here's never wiped it out completely um, in that regard. There are times, I think, maybe when I have given the little bit that I have left. The beauty of what we learned in that week when Donnie was preaching is that <coughs> God doesn't give greasy leftovers from the night before. Okay? That's the picture you get. And that's the motivation. Like God, God gave it all for us in the work of his son Jesus at the cross and the empty tomb. Last week then was week three. <coughs> and um, what we did was we kind of took a journey, if you remember. We took a journey through the New Testament, um, looking at all of the different um, uses of, of the Greek word for tithe. Um, all too often people make these big weird blanket statements like, oh, the New Testament doesn't talk about that, Jesus doesn't talk about that, and then we find out that, oh, actually it does, and yes, he does. And so we worked through that, we worked through passages in Matthew and Luke and Hebrews, and as we kind of did that word study in God's word about the tithe, we examined three questions, who or what do I love the most, who or what do I trust the most, and who or what do I believe is superior in my life. And then at the end of that sermon last week, I think it was compellingly obvious, especially as we looked at that passage in Hebrews, that, that when we tithe and when we give faithfully to God, what we're doing is we're confessing 
and professing that Christ Jesus is superior. And that was the picture that we saw. One of the most tangible ways that we can profess that he is superior. And most of us like to post things on Facebook. And I think a lot of times we as Christians think Facebook or social media is a great place to prove our faith, right? And I'd just like to say, how about we stop doing that and start giving like God's called us to and let's profess our faith that way. You know what I mean? Like, it just kind of makes sense. And I've been convicted of some of these things as we've been, as we've been doing this study too. So, um, so, good study over the last couple of weeks. This is the last week, and it's the largest chunk of text. We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And by way of introduction, before we dive into them, these two chapters are perhaps the largest chunk of New Testament passage that we have on the topic of giving, okay? Um, kind of a, the largest condensed area of text together in the New Testament. Now, although I do want to make a note, and I'll probably make it two or three times, this, the, this text, uh, chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, they're not specifically about tithing. So, they're not. Uh, the, in fact, they're not even really about the topic of giving regularly to the ministry of the local church. Um, the, 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 these, these passages really are about giving in an instance of some severe need. Um, that's really the underpinning of, um, of these chapters. Now, as we read them, as we study them, I think what you'll find is that they do speak very practically um, about the motivation for our giving. So think about what motivates you to give. So they do speak very practically to that. Um, and I think they speak practically to this topic of giving over and above our tithe. The sense that I'm going to take and just land on is that when Paul encourages people to give in these two chapters as we read it, he's assuming that they're already tithing and that the, the training wheels of generosity are pretty much off the bike and they're riding just fine. I always say tithing is the, are, are, are wheels of, um, you know, like on a trike. Um, they kind of help keep you steady. It's kind of the beginning point of being generous. I think that Paul already believes that that's happening, and he's moved on to calling them to giving over and above that. That's the way that I take this text. And so he's talking about the motivation. He's talking about some very practical pieces in terms of giving. Um, I think he's, he's going to talk about the integrity in our giving. And he's also going to talk about being ready, willing, and generous in our giving. Now, before I move on much further, I've wasted enough time in the introduction already. I can tell you that, as I know how long my manuscript is. <laughs> additional note, final additional note before we actually dive into the text is this. This, again, this is a large, seriously large portion of the text. That in one commentary this week, it was three full chapters of, of commentary to sift through. Um, and, and in my heart, I want to be very careful to highlight just some of the most important aspects of this text. Um, but I also want to be faithful to the gospel, and I also want to be faithful to our time together. So there's a couple of pressures there as I step into um, this pulpit with these passages. So I'm just going to confess to you on the front end that I have leaned very heavy on, uh, on a commentary uh, this week written by um, R. Kent Hughes. And uh, I want to give proper, what's, what's the word, um, proper... Uh, Credence is not the right word, but citation uh, to where the bulk of the material that I'm going to 
present to you today comes from. Um, I, I always do rely on commentaries um, in my interpretation of scripture and crafting of sermons. Um, I, I see them as a general guide in preaching so that I am actually standing on the shoulders of other faithful preachers. Um, but this week, what I'm going to do is I'm going to seek to basically summarize R. Kent Hughes's arguments and main points from his commentary. Um, and you can look up the manuscript somewhere on my blog, I think, and you can find the citations. You can go, you can look it up, and you can check it out. He's got far more to say than I'm going to say today, and I'm going to say more than enough for today. Okay. So, with all that said, as introduction, I want to dive in. I'm going to dive into the first portion of text, and I want to look at 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15 first. So you might kind of highlight that. You can see it on the screen in front of you. As we look at these first 15 verses together, the question that I think is kind of underpinning all of these first 15 verses is this question. Have I experienced the grace of giving? Okay. That's the question I want us to ask ourselves. Have I experienced the grace of giving? If you look at 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15, here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. That is a dream. It's a dream. The dream that I have, that people would beg earnestly to give. In churches, it's usually the opposite. <laughs> You're usually begging everyone earnestly to give. I believe this will be us. I believe that. I don't know how fast that will happen. Verse 5. And this, obviously, not as we expected, he says. But they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus... That as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I love that Paul is not discounting other areas of growth in our lives. But he's saying this area is just as important as all those others. Right? <clears throat> Verse 8, I say this not as a command but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. That's so fascinating that he makes a distinction between the fact that you need to do something, but you also need to desire to do it. And that a year ago, they started doing it and they desired to do it at the same time. It wasn't this begrudging, oh, I guess because the pastor says I need to do. It was, 
No, I recognize that Jesus gave it all for me. I really want to do this, and therefore I'm going to do it. That's what he's saying. He's commending them for that. And he's saying it's very good for them, right? Verse 11. So now, finish doing it as well. <laughs> How about that? Oh, you said you're going to do it. You're doing it. You want to do it. Hey, do it, right? Be who you say you're going to be and do what you say you're going to do, and it's going to be good. So that your readiness and desire it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So he's not asking us to give out of something we don't have. If you don't have $10,000 in your bank account and you say, I'm going to tithe on $10,000, but you ain't got that in there, you ain't going to be able to tithe on it, right? He's just saying, be practical about this thing. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that at a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. So again, the question I think in this section is, have I experienced the grace of giving? And it goes both ways. Have you experienced that in terms of what you give, and have you experienced that in terms of what's being given to you? This section of Scripture, as I said earlier, is not about tithing. I think tithing is an accepted norm at this point. It's why he's not talking about it. It's already part of the discipline of the believer's life. He's moved on from the training wheels of tithing. He's moved into riding this bike of generosity all by themselves, right? And so he's moved into this area of giving over and above that tithe. I also don't think this is about the regular giving to our local church or ministries. This, this passage, the, these two chapters, is all about uh, this, this one-time special gift to another church that was in need. Um, and it's also about God's grace as it relates to our giving. And then it also is all about the motivation behind our giving, as I said earlier. And the implication of this text, if you were to kind of go, what's the, like, the big implication here? Again, if you're asking that question, have I experienced the grace of giving, then the implication of the text is that authentic salvation, if you've been saved and you call yourself a Christian, if you make that confession of faith, with me today, then I think Paul is saying, hey, authentic salvation changes our orientation to wealth. It changes the way we view wealth and the way we behave with wealth. Commentator did great pointing back to a story that illustrates this well in the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Tiny little wee little mafia mob boss who was going and collecting taxes. Yo, give me your money, right? And he meets Jesus. And when he meets Jesus, he gets saved. And his response to getting saved is what? He gives it all back. Everything he stole, plus some. See, if our professed salvation has not loosened our grip on our material things, on our wealth, so that we have become giving people, then it's quite possible, quite possible, that, that, our, that our profession of salvation is false. Quite possible. Despite our confession, if it has not loosened our grip on our money, we should be tested in this area, right? 
Once again, when, when we claim the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior, that confession, if it is authentic, is going to inevitably be followed by the fruit of growing in our obedience to Jesus, especially in this area of our giving. If you think about verses 1 through 7 here, quick little breakdown, a little bit of commentary on that. In verses 1 through 7, what does the Apostle Paul do? He, he uses an example of somebody else to motivate the Corinthians' giving. Now, the interesting thing was the Corinthians were a very wealthy church. So Paul, in his wisdom, and I think in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, obviously, he uses the Macedonian churches as the example to motivate this very wealthy church to give. The Macedonian churches, they were very small, they were very poor, they were very afflicted. But despite their physical circumstances, they were generous. They were self-giving. The, the implication here, when you think about verses 1 through 7, and this example of the Macedonian churches, is that there is no way to grow to spiritual maturity without committing your finances to the Lord. That's part of the journey of growing in maturity. Here's a phrase that I came across that really caught my attention as I was studying. Jesus can have our money without having our hearts. But, but, he cannot have our hearts without having our money. So the question is, is have you experienced the grace of giving? Not just being given to, but also giving. Does Jesus have both your heart and your money? And here's the thing. You'll know the answer to that question when you open up your bank statement and you observe what percentage of your wealth you give away, not only to the work of the church, but also to the needs of others around you. That's how you answer the question. I don't ask that question so that you might go, oh, well, you know, subjectively, I think today I feel pretty good about what I've done. I, I, you know, it's not that. It's like, no, let's get real about that and go back to your bank statement, take a look at it, and see what changes need to happen. Verses 8 through 10, you kind of look at that. The Apostle Paul moves on, using examples to motivate, right? His next example is Jesus himself, which I think is a great example to use. He uses Jesus as an example to motivate the Corinthian church to give. Why? Why does he use Jesus? Just because it's a Sunday school answer? No. He uses Jesus as the example because giving is a matter of grace. Giving is a matter of grace all the way from the beginning to the end. You think about it this way. Jesus gave himself, right? We're talking about giving. And Jesus gave himself for us so that as we receive his grace, we then would give ourselves to him and to others in his name. That's, it's a reciprocal type of a thing. When I receive the grace of God, I want to then give graciously as well. It's all an act of grace. This response to God's grace, it includes not just giving my time and my talent, it includes giving my treasure. Oftentimes, we want to go, well, I can't give as much of my treasure, so I'm going to give a little bit more of my time, 
and a little bit more of my talent. And that's a really chemically imbalanced way of viewing it. And it's an excuse. But we're called to give generously in all three of those categories. See, when I, when I begin to really grapple with the fact that God has given me what I do not deserve, I am convicted and I become motivated to give God what he does deserve. Now, as you kick into verses 11 through 15, and you move away from these examples, Paul kind of shifts gears, right? And he kind of shifts gears uh, and begins to instruct the Corinthians to follow through, to make good on their commitment, to give in proportion to what they have, because they're giving is going to have a reciprocal effect in meeting the needs of the community. In effect, here's what it's like. When we walk our talk, the community of believers is then taken care of as those of us who have experienced the grace of God give out of that experience generously. The implication of these final verses is that we should give in proportion to what we have. And when we do this, when every believer walks in obedience to this, it's not like Jesus is going to come back sooner or all the bad things in the world are going to go away or our government's going to get fixed or anything like that. What's going to happen when we walk in obedience to this is everyone around us gets blessed and no one lives without a need being met. I've always been a huge proponent that if the church did what it's supposed to do in this area of giving, you would not need a government to give handouts. The only reason that we have a government that gives handouts is because we don't obey this. And we don't obey this because we don't believe the gospel. I know it's hard to hear and hard to say, but it's true. When I struggle to give, it's because I have totally misappropriated the fact that Jesus gave everything on that cross. And therefore, I'm unable to give everything like that old widow too. That's what's happening in those moments. Every time I mismanage my money, it's because I forget that Jesus managed his life to the extent that he would give it all away for me. So, when I think about this picture, I think of the church in the book of Acts. Acts 2 and Acts 4. That, that they gave everything they could and not one person in their community was in need. And then what is it, what's the follow-up thing say? I think both passages, at least one of them, no, I think both passages say, or at least implicate, that people were coming to Jesus daily. This was part of the image of a healthy church that practiced good evangelism and mission in their community. It's fascinating. So this, this is the picture. This is the image of a family, a church family, where every member carries his or her own weight of responsibility in giving. I mean, you and I each have an individual responsibility to receive the grace of God through the gospel and then to reciprocate that, not only in our growth in character, but our growth in our giving. And here's the thing. This, 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 what's going to motivate us to do this? Um, this, this, this kind of heart attitude. What's going to make that happen? 
I mean, I've been kind of dancing around it the whole time and trying to say it in different ways, right? That's a preacher's job. Tell you what I'm going to say. Tell you what I want to say. Tell you what I just said, right? Get that? It's just the repetitive thing. Just say it differently. Um, This kind of heart attitude, it's, it's all bound up in the word grace. So I asked the question, have I experienced the grace of giving? This word grace is used no less than eight times throughout these two chapters that we're studying this morning. (coughs) It's the most dominant theme, the most dominant word in our passages. See, when 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 a church family gets caught up in the picture of a bloody cross and in the victory of an empty tomb, and when, when, when a church family gets caught up in the promise of heaven for sinners who have been made into saints. I mean, grasp the idea that you are a sinner, but God calls you a saint. He calls you set apart and holy, his belonging, his child. That's what, that's what, that's what happens in the grace of the gospel. And when a church family gets caught up in that picture, then I believe, and only then, is that church family going to be transformed into gracious givers. So have you pondered the grace of God and the cross, the empty tomb, and the promise of heaven? Have you pondered that lately? And as you're doing that, would you also simultaneously contemplate the call of God on your life as a believer, a recipient of God's grace, to then reciprocate that grace in your giving of your wealth? I believe we have an awesome opportunity as a church family, to be part of the economy of grace when we give. A side note, most of you know I've been doing my best as a pastor and shepherd to come around and meet with everybody in our church. I haven't gotten to everybody, which many of you haven't gotten to yet. (coughs) First of all, I just want to say, a meeting to talk about this specifically and try to offer help and offer challenge and, and ask, too. Just be courageous in asking. Um, after nine years of planting, we're in that season. This is the thing we're boiling on the stovetop, right? And I want to be faithful in that. And I want to say, first of all, that I'm, I'm really thankful that none of you have ghosted me. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> Yet. So, <laughs> so I, I'm thankful for that. I also want to say that when it comes to this awesome opportunity to be part of an economy uh, of grace in giving, I'm just very thankful in the conversations I'm having with many of you. Many of you are really thinking through this and really praying through this and really going back to your budgets and really going back to the scriptures and really testing what we've been preaching and really thinking through that. Many of you have, are, are expressing a desire and a commitment um, to move from this area in your giving to this area. And, and you're working through the, the barriers that are there, that have been there. And, 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 and can I just capture all this in one word? You know what that is? It's called repentance. <laughs> There's something really awesome like when an entire church family starts repenting of the same thing together. And there are people outside who are seeing, I'm able to like report to others who have been supporting us for nine years and say, hey, hey, it's happening. Our people are like leaning into this. It's not... It's, yeah, it's, it's awesome. I just want to say it's an awesome opportunity, and I'm thankful. And I know some of the barriers for some of you have been pretty big, actually. Um, so I just want to be encouraging that way and just say thank you. And thank you for leaning into this. I know it's a, I know it's a, um, shoot, gosh damn. 
And it's a touchy topic. So I'm just thankful for you guys. Let's dive into the second text because I've spent a lot of time here. 2 Corinthians 8, 16 through 24. Let me read it for you. As we're reading it, here's the second question. Here's the question, I think, in this text. The first one was, am I experiencing the, the grace of giving? The question here in this portion is, is my giving backed by integrity? Is my giving backed by integrity? Let me read it, 16 through 24. Paul says, but thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord with him. We are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he's been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. Meaning to show that we're collecting this offering correctly. Okay. Verse 20. Uh, we take this course, we're, we're doing it this way, so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. In, in, in other words, we're trying to be way above reproach in the way that we're coming to receive and collect this offering for we aim at what is honorable not only in the lord's sight but also in the sight of man and with them titus and the brother who's famous for preaching the gospel with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches. Interesting little note, we're a part of three different groups, right? SBC, Converge, and A29. In the SBC, we're all called messengers when you go to their meetings because of this passage. Messengers that were elected by the churches to go and represent. Represent? Everybody say that? Represent? Represent. All right, that's good. So he follows us up by saying, so give proof before the churches of your love. Mm. Our giving proves our love. Give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. How about, like, Paul, you did really good laying the weight on. Like, I put them in a tough position. We've been boasting about you, yo, so behooves you to follow through. <laughs> it's an integrity thing, right? It's really an integrity thing. If you go back to the Gospel of Luke again, and you think about the Gospel of Luke, which is where you see that story of Zacchaeus. Interestingly, as soon as Zacchaeus repents, gives his money back, and then starts giving even more, what does Jesus say? It's a famous passage. Salvation has come to this house, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. The core, it's the core passage of the Gospel of Luke. It is the passage that everybody would say, that is the core theme. And so what does Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, use as the big illustration of what it looks like when someone gets saved? A wealthy man. It's fascinating, isn't it? When you read the Gospel of Luke, 
Luke records Jesus as saying over and over and over and over again that it is absolutely useless to talk about loving Jesus and trusting him and having this sweet assurance of forgiveness and the the glorious hope of heaven unless it actually makes a difference in the way that you handle your material attachments. Strong emotions, deep, sweet feelings, confidence of being forgiven, right? Awesome worship experiences on Sunday morning, gospel communities and community groups and men's groups and women, all those things. All those experiences and the ways that we are a part of the church. All that stuff is only valid if you open your hands. Those are, I think, theological truths that the Apostle Paul appears to share with Luke. Part of the reason that most commentators take a pretty strong connection to Luke when interpreting this passage is that they believe that one of the three men that is being sent um, to collect the offering the one who is famous for preaching the gospel. There are many commentators who believe that is Luke. There are some who believe it's John or John Mark. So it's hard to say, but I think there's an overwhelming majority who believe it may be Luke, and because of that, they make a lot of connections to the gospel of Luke. I don't think it's inappropriate because all scripture is breathed out by God. And Luke does take a good, a good, heavy, hard look all throughout as he talks about Jesus. He seeks to highlight many passages about how we handle our wealth. So, I think the Apostle Paul agrees. What he values here is integrity in giving. And not just integrity in our giving, but also integrity in the process of receiving the offering. So much so that in this passage that we just looked at, what he's doing is he's outlining the integrity of the men who are going to receive the offering. And then in doing so, he also outlines the integrity of the actual system itself of collecting that offering. This is important. Why? When you think about it, we, we live in a day and age, and when you say that, it's like it always has been that day and age. I get it. Always has been, because this was a long time ago. But in the day and age we live in, This problem still exists. Financial mishandling in the church. You see it all over the place. I have no problems naming James McDonald. I have no problems naming some health, wealth, and prosperity gospel ministers who love to spend billions a night on hotel rooms with gold toilets while they turn people away in the prayer lines who need to be prayed for so that they might get up out of their wheelchair and walk and yet they present a quote-unquote healing ministry, even claiming to people tonight, God is going to give you your eyesight back so you can take off your glasses. While said minister is wearing a pair of glasses and never takes them off. It blows my mind. We live in a day and age where coming across this kind of stuff is easy, and it has infected the church in America. Go figure, one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Okay. We live in a day and age where that stuff gets mainstream front and center. And the temptation for a church like us is to not pay much attention to what it means to be integrous in our giving and in our collecting. So I think it's good that the Apostle Paul writes this way. The reality is that we as a church, we as individuals within a church family, and then we corporately or, or familially, that's a, lots of L's, try to say that five times fast, as a family, as a church family, need to be above reproach, need to have integrity in these things. The way that we do that is we want to be careful in the way that we collect money each week, right? We want to be careful in our accounting, careful in our spending limits, careful in our budgets. Those things need to be above reproach. So look at this with me a little bit in verses 16 through 22. 
you can see just how the Apostle Paul distances himself, actually. He kind of takes a distance away from that collection of the Corinthians giving. And what he does is he commends the integrity of these other three men to perform that collection. Those three men, once again, you got Titus, who he talks about twice. I think Titus is kind of the leader of that financial team. He commends him twice. You got this unnamed famous brother who's appointed by the churches. And then you got another unnamed brother who is very trustworthy, very earnest, he says. These are men of integrity. They're well known by the Corinthian church. They weren't just going to show up unannounced. They were going to show up unknown. Um, Paul, here's the thing. Paul did not hand this responsibility over to men or women who were irresponsible with their money. He didn't hand this over to men and women who were untrustworthy. He handed this responsibility to people who were known for their personal integrity and their trustworthiness. And so I think for us, we learn a lesson here. We need to consistently ask if our giving, both at the personal level, and then I think um, the systems of collecting those offerings, we need to be asked if all of that is backed by some kind of integrity. There needs to be checks and balances. There needs to be eyes on those things. We used to send out profit and loss and balance statement and giving reports and all those things weekly. And our finance team was like, please stop. It's too much. <laughs> so we send them once a month to our finance team. And our finance team meets regularly to review those things. Um, thankfully, I don't think I've ever touched an offering myself. I think from day one we've been thankful in that. Even, even the early days when we met in our house, we had this little basket with all of our coffee mugs out there so people get cups of coffee. And there was always a person who would pay attention to that and collect that and make the deposit and so on and so forth. Now, if you look now at verses 23 through 24, the last couple of verses um, in, in what we just read, um, I think what you see there is Paul summarizing. And he's summarizing his commendation of these men who are going to collect the offering, and then he challenges the Corinthians to follow through on their commitment so that they can prove Paul's boasting about them to be true, and he also wants to show that they had not received the grace of God in vain. Now, the importance of this offering, he says, extends well beyond the Corinthians into eternity because this offering is going to do four things. It's going to prove the validity of their faith, that their faith is not in vain. It's going to help the impoverished church in Jerusalem actually survive and stay alive. It's going to demonstrate the miracle of the new covenant where Jews and Gentiles are actually one in Christ. And by the way, this is one of the most tangible ways that you see Jews and Gentiles working together in the text and living out this passage that we're all one in Christ, regardless of your skin color, regardless of your ethnic background, regardless of your social economic status. I mean, look around the room. We have lots of that, right? Regardless of where you come from, regardless of where you're at, our giving together is something that proves that we're all one in Christ. It's a, fascinating, it's a fascinating thought, and it's true. It also declares the glory of the Lord to the church and to the world. So for those same reasons, we today need to pay attention to what we do with our money. It is of deep significance, both right now and in the world to come. And it declares. It declares whether or not our salvation has come to our house. It declares whether or not we are sons and daughters of God. So what we learn in this section is that integrity begins with a public confession of faith in Christ, and then it extends. So when you make that public confession, integrity is there. But then it extends out into the kind of people we are becoming and then continues into, um, into the systems of our money management and the ways that we give. So every time that you and I 
uh, work to ensure that our checks don't bounce, right? When we work to ensure that we're not allowing our debt levels to just get way out of whack. When we work to ensure that those whom we owe money to are being paid back in a timely manner. When we do those kinds of things, it's a very small, visible way that we worship God. Because it's called integrity, right? So if my debt is skyrocketing out of control in some areas, I ought not to be out buying a brand new gun or a brand new motorcycle, though I would like to. It's a very personal illustration because I sat in a gun show yesterday for like nine hours looking at guns that I can't buy. It's like putting a fat kid in a candy store and saying you can't have any. You know, it's like, Is your giving, both personally and systematically, backed up by a reputation for integrity? We're at 45 minutes in. We got one more text to work through. Y'all with me? Okay. I apologize. I had a feeling. 2 Corinthians 9, 1 through 15. See if we can do it in less than an hour. Right? That's, that's the game. That's, that's the goal. That's the aim. Ah, 2 Corinthians 9, 1 through 15. Question under the text is this. Am I ready? Am I willing? And am I a generous giver? Now, again, I just take the text how it is. I didn't write it this way. It's like, at first he's like getting after us, like, okay, is it this, is it that? Let me motivate you, yada, yada, yada. Now are you ready? It's like, oh, man, you got me. That's Paul. That's the Holy Spirit, really, right? 2 Corinthians 9. Let's read it. Now, it is superfluous. I love that word, superfluous. Superfluous. Actually, I should say that right. It's superfluous. Nobody uses that word in their language except for Paul, Okay. It is superfluous (laughs) for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia, or Corinth, has been ready since last year. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers, so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. Like the relational capacity that Paul has with these people to say these things, right? There's some relational capital he's spending here on this topic. So I thought it necessary, okay, superfluous means necessary. I don't know why they don't just put necessary. Now, it is not necessary for me to write to you about this. Now, now then he switches gears in verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so they may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. In other words, this shouldn't look like a mafia mob movie. <laughs> That's what I hear. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. That's true. Sow sparingly, reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times you may abound in every good work as it is written. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission 
that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. See that? Once again, your submission, your gift, comes out of your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. In this final section of our text, it's really all about the Corinthians' commitment to give, right? And the Apostle Paul is not writing to persuade them. He's not trying to twist their arms behind their back and get them to give. It's not really what he's doing. He's really writing to help them, to assist them in completing their commitment. Apostle Paul's not acting like a mafia mob boss, like I said earlier. Those dudes who send their henchmen to collect what is due. What he's doing is he's acting like a leader. Paul's acting like a leader. He's also acting like a good brother or sister in Christ would act in regards to this by reminding his family members that, hey, you made a commitment, and now I want to outline for you what I'm willing to do and able to do to help you follow through on that commitment. At the end of the day, the question really is, are you ready, willing, and generous? Are you ready to give? This would be the good time to take an offering, right, Joe? Start waving checks around. We talked about this earlier. It was a joke. Instead of leaving the box in the back, we're going to pass it down the rows. Yeah, we could get away with that and probably maybe get a bigger offering than usual. That's called manipulation, so we won't do that. We'll leave the box in the back and let you guys give as the Lord leads you, right? The Apostle Paul is doing here is he's reminding the Corinthians, he's reminding them that they're poverty-stricken sister churches. They had already given. Corinth is the wealthy church. The poverty-stricken churches had given out of their poverty because they had heard that the Corinthians were ready. Like, well, the big wealthy church wants to give? Well, we want to be, we want to be at the front of that line. So for me, it's like when I hear that Coram Deo is going to send us a $10,000 check again this year, which I haven't heard, by the way. But when I hear something like that, and they've done this year after year after year, I feel like this poor little church, and I want us to be at the front of the line, like, yo, wait, before you send us that, we want to like give as much as we can. That's the picture I see taking place here. And I've lived that, just experienced that over and over and over again, that desire, that want. Paul wants to help the Corinthians avoid the humiliation of their reputation not being matched by their readiness. He wants their reputation to be matched by their readiness so that in their willingness and in their eagerness, it would be proven by their actions, right? Actions always speak louder than words. And in the words of a really good friend of mine who I won't name because I didn't ask for permission, posers pose and givers give. I'm like, whoa. It's like one of the best lines I've ever heard is a text message. Posers pose and givers give. And my hope is that the well would be known as a church who is who we say we are and does what we say we're going to do. Right? That's my hope. We've got to remember, giving doesn't save anyone. We've got to continuously say it because I think it's so easy to hear teaching like this and go, oh man, <laughs> giving doesn't save anybody at all. And I don't think it actually proves whether you're saved or not. I think there's implications, so I will, I'll go there. I think it does indicate um, that your confession of faith is authentic as you grow in this area. Um, 
I think that is the proper response to the grace of Jesus, who for our sake became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. So I think when we really live like ready, willing, and generous givers, what we're doing is we're modeling the work of our Savior at the cross and, and his work at the empty tomb and his, his promise of heaven. I think Jesus put his money where his mouth was. I think he proved his readiness. He proved his willingness. He, he proved his generosity when he went to the cross, right? And when he, when he left the tomb empty. And then when he said, hey, I'm going to promise you heaven, a place where there is no more mourning, no more crying, no more tears, no more sin, a perfect place. So when the Apostle Paul describes what it looks like to be ready, willing, and generous givers, I think, I think what he's doing is he's saying that a ready, willing, and generous giver is going to understand that it's actually a blessing to be a blessed giver, right? It's not how much you give. It's rather that you actually give as generously as possible with an attitude of joy and cheerfulness in the blessing of giving. It is a blessing to give. And, and, and until our hearts get moved to that place or we recognize that we have received so much from Christ, I think it'll always feel like some kind of other act that I just have to begrudgingly do. And so I think I really need to, and you really need to as well, lean into this truth that when Jesus went to the cross, he went to the cross to die for you and for me as his enemies, and he did it full of joy, Hebrews says for the joy set before him. That's the image I want to keep in front of me as I write that check or as I give with a credit card or whatever it is. He, he gave himself away with joy for an enemy. So I certainly can give with joy for my Savior. Right? It's an adventure. It's a joy-filled adventure. Final verses. Verses 8 through 15 what Paul does is he outlines the benefits of being ready and willing to give. That's really what he does. There's lots of benefits that he outlines, but in short, we learn that when we are ready, when we're willing to give generously, what happens is we wind up benefiting personally because we experience God meeting our needs. Okay? And then in the midst of that, the church also benefits corporately, as a family, um, for, from, from this widespread gratitude that, that kind of comes out as our needs are being met, we're able to say, God, thank you for meeting our needs. And then in the midst of that, God is glorified through that, right? Ready, willing, generous giving uh, really is a family discipline. It's a family discipline as each person decides what the Lord has called them to give. Now, I'll close down this way in, in conclusion. I, oftentimes, over the years, when we've kind of talked about some of these things, um, one of the common things that I'll hear is, well, if we could just get more people to come in the doors that would give, I think we'd be good. And what that is, is that's a, uh, it's a dismissal of my own responsibility and it's a desire to pass that buck off to somebody else because I think I'm already given enough or I'm too, I, I just don't have enough um, rather than doing the good heart work of repentance. Once again, I just want to encourage us. I've heard that, those kinds of things for like nine years. I'm not hearing as much of that in this season. I'm hearing many of you go, I have a responsibility. I, I need to be the owner of this church. It's not your church, Joe. It belongs to all of us. It really belongs to Jesus. And Jesus has given this church family to all of us as a gift, right? I could say more. I just want to say I'm so thankful. Grateful for you guys. I want to pray for us. Let us go to worship. Just stand with me.
Father, thank you. Thank you for this word. We know that when you call us to obedience to your word in our giving, we know that you're not calling us to like reach deep down inside our beings and just rise to like the best within us or something like that or try to find some way of being obedient. Lord, we recognize that this call to be ready, willing, generous in our giving, it's really a call to authentically come to Jesus in true belief and repentance. Or we know that you are calling us to come to that place where we could proclaim with Paul at the very end of this text, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. It really is a gift that you would come and ransom us by the work of your son Jesus at the cross. It's inexpressible, the grace that you would extend to us. Help us to spend time there over the next few minutes. Help us do work Help your spirit to do work in us. Draw us to the foot of a bloody cross. Help us to view the victory of the empty tomb and to hold fast to the hope of heaven. Trust that you would do that work. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.